Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Trump eller Biden? Ja, det ved vi ikke her klokken 9.20 onsdag morgen. Der er stadig stemmer, der skal tælles. Biden har talt og sagt, at tingene så godt ud for ham, mens Trump allerede har erklæret sejr. Og nu vil han så prøve at få den amerikanske højesteret til at stoppe den videre optælling af de mange millioner brevstemmer, der endnu mangler at blive registreret. Det startede med, at alle regnede med en sikker sejr til Joe Biden. Nu er det hele ved at blive noget rod. Hvorfor? Hvordan? Hvad nu? Velkommen til Altinget Azure i en lang udgave om præsidentvalget i verdens vigtigste demokrati. Velkommen til. Mit navn er Esben Schøring. Og nu slår jeg over i engelsk. Vi har nemlig blandt andet besøg igen af Rosalind Layton, Ph.D. fra Aalborg Universitet, republikaner og i 2016 del af Trumps rådgiverhold, da han blev præsident. Hi Rosalind, welcome back to Alting Azure. Great to be with you. Welcome back also to Jesper Packard Pedersen, policy advisor to House Democrats for 10 years before returning here to Denmark and uh, as a Uh, in capacity of being public affairs director for Christian Hansen, a Danish biotech firm. Jesper, welcome back too. Thank you so much. And last but not least, welcome to Peter Christian Brandom. You teach political science uh, at the Danish high school. You uh, uh, has uh, a job also at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, and you've written a book about uh, to Danish students about American uh, politics. And in the latest edition of Altingen Magazine, you wrote a essay about your trip to the Rust Belt, which in 2016, and again here in 2020, is a key battleground. Welcome to you too. Thank you so much. All right, so let's just start from the latest news. Trump declares himself a winner. He wants to go to the Supreme Court. What is up with that? Rosalind, you're first. Well, what I am very happy about is uh, we can say democracy is alive and well in the United States. I heard so many media pundits talking about a Biden landslide and it was the end of democracy because of Trump and so forth. But we've seen this election has 10 to 12 million more voters than last time. And even under pandemic conditions, people have stood in line. They have mailed in their votes to see such a an outpouring for the American constitutional process. It's so encouraging as an American. I love to see it. And I would just say one other thing that we get a little bit tied up because, oh, we don't know it right now. In the olden days before TV, elections took weeks because they actually, we actually, people in those days had to go to have the, they cast their electoral votes in person. They still do it. But so things, it's not unusual that things take time. I mean, because of now media, we get answers instantly. Um, you know, that's, We're, we're used to that instant gratification, but we've had cases in the past where the the answers weren't at clear. But I will say Trump has increased support in a lot of places he's won before. That is, that's absolutely clear. But what do you say to him declaring victory without all the votes being counted for and him going to the no, Supreme No, what he Court? actually said, if you listen to the actual words that he said in the White House, is he was upset that where the margins he had are even higher than before, 
already the percentages coming in, you can see that, that those particular states would go in his favor. And he was expressing um, displeasure that that process was being drawn out. That's fair enough. Okay, but the Supreme Court thing, what are you, why? What? Well, so in this case now, what you're going to see is litigation over certain states that said, well, we haven't counted our votes in this particular time. You're not allowed to declare. And so um, there is a, um, it's a debate around, do you have to count every vote even when you know that even if you counted all the votes, you will still not make the margins that that, that, that you need? Mm-hmm. Yes, but your reaction to, to the dramatic turn of events? It's obviously premature for either candidate to call the election at this time. And frankly, I think that the remarks by the president are reckless. Mm-hmm. I mean, every election like this where it's very close, and I'm not uh, in a position to call it. I don't think the media is in a position to call it. I don't think the president is in a situation to call it. Actually going ahead and saying that you have a victory is, is reckless because it could instigate violence. Mm-hmm. That is something that you really need to be very careful with. He is speaking as the incumbent president. He will be the president regardless of the outcome until, you know, January. He's speaking from the White House. When Americans hear their commander in chief say that he wins the election and the media may come out and call it the other way, what are the consequences of that? I think it's extremely reckless. And of course, the principle of counting every vote is just a general principle that needs to happen, regardless of where that takes us. Mm-hmm. Peter, your, your, your view? No, I do agree with uh, Jesper uh, uh, on the Democratic part of it, saying that uh, it is reckless of the president to go out and say the things he said uh, in the press uh, release just, what was it, uh, an hour ago. Uh, at the same time, uh, I thought uh, I find it interesting, just as uh, Rosalind pointed to, is that he actually has very good numbers in a state such as Pennsylvania, which is highly surprising, uh, especially for all the pollsters, <laughs> who has once again not seen that coming. Um, so it was a little surprising for me that he was, uh, in a way, that dramatic in his uh, in his speak about uh, not um, counting all the votes um, that hasn't been counted for yet. So, so I would say, for me, it was strategically uh, surprising, uh, unless he and his campaign has knowledge that we are not aware of already that the numbers coming in from Wisconsin and um, from Michigan will turn the election in an opposite direction. So that can, in a way, make us understand why he did it. Yeah, because yeah, when I looked at, at, at the counting, he, he, it, it looked quite probable that he could take the victory by regulary <laughs> means of, of counting in the Rust Belt. Well, so there's a bit of media posturing. You saw both candidates came out and... and Essentially, they're getting on the record because both of them expect there will be some litigation. And they've been preparing for weeks. Both sides have had these litigation teams. And this is if you want to make, you know, United States will always employ lawyers. You know, there's, it's a great career choice. Um, but at any, at any rate, they have uh, both came out to put a position on the record so that they, they, they have this because they'll expect that there will be some way to fight whatever, um, whatever result is there. Now, uh, to, to Jesper's point around how it makes people feel distrustful and angry, from a lot of Republicans' point of view, they feel that um, Democrats have not respected this going back to 2016, that they never accepted Donald Trump as the president, that this has been a constant campaign against him to delegitimize him, whatever the result is, whether it was impeachment process, whether it was this Russian collusion, all of these, one case after the other, instead of trying to win an election based upon the issues. 
by the way, look at where you are in the Senate. It looks like it will stay Republican. You still have a majority of Republican governors. And in the big picture, I think that this election confirms GOP policy, that Americans are favor uh, lower taxes. They favor uh, a smaller administrative state. They um, favor the social and cultural issues Republicans have run on. So in terms of, and I want to think, I think Jesper did a great job on this previous podcast, where you want to talk about policies that get everybody on board that the Democrats haven't been able to come up with winning proposals that get them across the finish line. Yes, but I just want to get you in there. Why, why does Trump not just wait? Because it looks relatively good for him. I'm not in a position to guess sort of what his psychological makeup is right now. No. But to me, and I'm a biased observer, I think that's evident at this point, um, it looks like uh, someone trying to defend against a, uh, a potential loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't explain it any he other hedges. way. Maybe he got, yeah, Hedges maybe got carried away or whatever. I would, uh, I would meet Rosalind halfway and say um, any other president that had presided over a, an economy that at the overall is doing as strong as it is, would be a shoo-in at this point. And from that perspective, kind of a broader historical perspective, Trump is not a shoo-in. This is not, you know, has not been a landslide for him. It would for many other presidents in history, and that has not happened. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's also a repudiation of some of his political standpoints. It's a pox on both houses. Mm-hmm. And so, so just, uh, I mean, because the big other thing that has happened in 2020 is uh, COVID-19. Had it not been for COVID-19, would this have been a landslide victory for Trump, Peter First? Yeah, I, I was thinking of the same uh, when, when Jesper pointed to it about the American economy. And when I was traveling around the Rust Belt states in particular in uh, late February and, and March, the economy was really roaring. I'd say it was really strong and there was a really positive vibe about the uh, campaign. You know, everyone in Denmark says that it's been a... Uh, awful campaign. It hasn't been prepared, etc. Uh, but the point is actually that the ground game for many Republican parties out in the states, especially in the Rust Belt state, was preparing tremendously. In, in Ohio, they had a reach of 90% potentially Republican voters. We're not discussing that in Denmark. And at that time, they were really, uh, they had faith in their campaign. They were really believing that this would be a strong win for them because the economy was really in a good position. Then COVID-19 came and, and tore the campaign apart. Um, I do agree with, with Jesper that maybe it wouldn't have been a, a landslide because of, as you pointed to, uh, because of, of Donald Trump. But I still think that it would have been a strong Republican victory because the economy was doing that well. And it is the most important issue for the American. It was just pointed to on the CNN exit poll uh, that eco- the economy is just number one issue for the Americans. Yeah. Russell, so, you know, it's a had great it, point. Had it been a, do you think COVID-19 has blocked well, Trump d- from, from a landslide victory? It's possible. I mean, I haven't studied that. But, you know, to, to take into perspective... Um, to look at the, the negativity here from you know certain media, in the third quarter, you had a roaring back of U.S. economy, 33 percent, something that hasn't been seen since World War II, 70 years or so. And this wasn't reported by mainstream media. You know, maybe Fox reported it. So there was a there's sometimes a sense of, of split reality going on. And um, 
so whether it's – I guess what I'd say is I think that there are people who hate Trump so much or people in the media or what have you. They don't want to accept it, whatever the facts are, and that it's convenient to say it's the pandemic, it's this, that, or the other. And so there's a cognitive dissonance. I see so much similarity here in 2020 than we saw in 2016. The same thing leading up, even though the polls were very close, you know, was Hillary's going to win? We had so many media people saying, Biden, this is, a, this is an absolute secure thing. And so, um, you know, so I think there's a resistance of a lot of elites to want to accept under any circumstances that, that, that Trump could be there. Yes, well, COVID-19, which factor did it, did it, did it play into the election? It's a really good question, and the one I um, kind of remain with and that we'll never have answered here is I wonder what the election would have been about had it not been uh, for the coronavirus. Would there actually have been a real you know, societal discussion about uh, health care, about uh, access to the labor market, about access to college and housing policy and those kind of things? The government's role in the economy? Pardon me? The government's role in the economy? Exactly. Those kind of things. We we ended up not having that conversation. And I don't know, frankly, whether uh, Trump would have been uh, the stronger um, candidate on those issues or whether Biden would have. We we will never know. Um, it is interesting to me that, uh, that coronavirus did not come out on top in these uh, exit polls that ask about issues. But I have to wonder whether many people, when they get that question, just directly connect the coronavirus with the economic effects of the coronavirus. So that could be a little bit misleading and not everyone has a nuance on that. In terms of the, we have indeed seen very impressive uh, economic growth in in, uh, the third quarter, but we have to see that in the context of the complete collapse of the second quarter. Sure, of course. Uh, I I was just thinking about it because other presidents, at least going back to George Bush, has had a national crisis. So George Bush had 9-11, Obama had the financial crisis. Trump didn't really have a crisis to deal with before COVID-19. And I think that's why it's interesting because being head of state and head of government at the same time, that's where you really have to show your true colors. Well, it's interesting when you talk about 9-11, you saw everyone rally behind George Bush, both parties. And here we did not see the Democrats rally behind the president, which I found quite unfortunate, Um, even though you had record stimulus that were able to be passed. Um, There wasn't a sense of, hey, we're all in this together. It was, oh, this virus is Trump's fault or this, you know, it turned it against him. So to me that I I find there's a deep-seated hatred towards him that doesn't want him to to even, that it's almost a sense for many, I'm not saying this is my personal view, but for many people feel that they would rather have America lose than Trump win. Mm-hmm. But do you feel Republicans rallied around him in that situation? For sure. Yes, definitely. I think, I feel, yeah, I, I mean, you, you can see what I, I would say is if you look at some of the places where Trump won in 2016, many of those places, his margin of winning is even higher. Florida is... Un- no, sorry, I mean, the Republican um, uh, elected officials and politicians. I feel the the real issue they deviated with the president on was actually around his coronavirus handling. Mm-hmm. That was there like some, the first yes. real deviation. Yeah, I mean, so in some cases, maybe w- was there... Um, uh, I mean, in, in a lot of the issues, I mean, you can, we talked about this last time, how do the Republicans vote? That everybody was on board with Supreme Court justices. There were so many issues where Republicans were totally online. Um, and I think coronavirus, it, it threw everybody for a world. They were not, our country was not prepared, unfortunately. And I go back to my anger is really around where's the accountability that we know that had China been more responsible, had they, had we acted Globally, three weeks before, we could have saved untold suffering and death around the world. Mm-hmm. 
Peter, short remark. Yeah, it just says it's about the issues because when when I talked, to, uh, I had an interview with a former uh, counselor to Bill Clinton, James Carville, in in late summer of 2019, and we were discussing uh, some. Uh, we had some reflections on the midterm election, and where Carville was really pointing to why the Democrats came out that strong in the states, uh, winning the House very large. Uh, that was because they were focusing on the issue, you know, on education reform, on health care, etc. And you were pointing to that, yes, as well, saying that what if COVID-19 uh, wasn't around, then then what would the election be about? Would it be about political issues? You know, Kabul was pointing to the fact that the Democratic candidate needs to stay focused on the issues. And we could actually say that that has not been the case this time. This time they have they have gathered together around this negative partisanship towards Trump. That has been the way for Biden to create the coalition among the Democrats because there's this huge division among Democratic groups within the party. And one one thing that united them was the the anti-Trump campaign. But the problem there seems to be that maybe tr- the anti-Trump campaign wasn't strong enough compared to political issues such as healthcare reforms or education we don't know by we don't know it yet but it seems like that that the numbers coming out of all these states um, has a way of saying that they they lack some kind of answers from the democrats on on certain issues and that's why they may be still staying with trump mm-hmm. so let's just go let's just kind of like rewind and then just take like the election night uh, um, as it as it as it begun because you know now a lot of people you said it to Ruslan have a 2016 deja vu reliving 2016 but when we started out it was all Biden you know how large how big was the Biden victory going to be and then pretty early on it was clear that it wasn't going to be and I think it had a lot to do with Florida because it turned because like you know exit polls whatever that came out of Florida early counting showed that, okay, so, you know, it was going to be tight. Uh, then Trump took the lead. And then there was like the whole atmosphere around the, the, the election changed. And I was thinking, is was that the hope for Democrats, that they would go for the early knockout, take Florida, and then it would be over for Trump? Is that Was, was, was that it? Because it didn't seem so surprising. So I think uh, Democrats had, had uh, become more competitive in slightly different states. I don't think they saw Florida as the state to deliver early on, and that would be the knockout victory. Uh, Florida, to, in my mind, has it's a very conservative state, and it's also an incredibly diverse state, so that means that it makes it very difficult to sort of calculate where is it heading. Um, that was the case in the Obama years and, uh, and also with Trump last time and this time. Um, but to me, leading into this election, it looked like the Democrats had actually expanded their political map from 2016. They turned out to be more competitive in some of the states, for example, in the Southwest. Um, they had a, a, a fundraising advantage. Uh, those things usually have an effect. To me, I think Georgia is extremely exciting. Um, where is that going? We, I think some of the uh, ballots that haven't been counted yet are in the uh, Atlanta area, and that's a predominantly Democratic area in an otherwise quite red state. Um, so that's going to be really interesting to follow throughout today, tomorrow, probably the whole week. Um, but the fact that the Democrats did seem to be competitive in states that were a little bit new, um, I think, is the interesting part. And then we are still left with uh, the states like Florida, which will always be a competition, but also Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, I thought there would be a little bit more competition over Ohio. Republicans performed very well there, and uh, hats off to that. Yeah, Arizona. 
got to be turned, it flipped. To, uh, right, and and so uh, I think this was one of the. This was at. Um, well, we're we're going to see whether or not that is litigated because I think the president indicated that that um, the numbers didn't um, didn't exactly shake out. So, but but what the, my my lesson here? I think the lesson for all of us is, you know, you don't take anyone for granted. You have to get out and earn the vote. And for you know what I would see, Trump over three days had fourteen rallies. I mean, it's a staggering, a staggering show for, for, for someone to do that. But where I think what to me is so exciting, what the GOP, what, or maybe Trump is in some ways a political genius, is he looked at a core group who were Democrats for life, this kind of blue collar, middle America, Rust Belt people who were always been dyed in the wool, blue Democrats. And he was able to capture them, bring them into the fold of, of the GOP. And now look at a guy like uh, uh, John James in, uh, in Michigan, new senator, um, uh, extremely inspiring, African-American, uh, was fought in wars. You have someone like from my district in Florida, 19th Congressional District, Byron Donalds, black man coming from um, a, a totally a red place, calls himself, he ran on a platform of being a pro-gun, pro-Trump, pro-school choice platform. So you have, you've had a record number of women running for GOP. So he's not just, um, he's changed the sense of the identity politics, because now if that was the game the Democrats want to re play, Republicans will play that game. They have now brought forth um, candidates. You have, a, um, you know, Trump has made this campaign to decriminalize homosexuality around the world. First, uh, uh, openly gay ambassadors. You've had um, a number of uh, uh, black uh, uh, candidates running as well. So that to me just says that no one should ever take these um, uh, voting and even to call, you know, people are individuals and they're going to want to make up their minds. And the sense that, oh, you're this color or this gender and you have to vote for this party, I think that's turning people off. And I hope we're going to tee up our friend over here who's actually, he's done an amazing article in POV, which I think explains better than anything I've read in the U.S. media about some of these key trends. Peter, everyone had a, a, a everyone has now a 2016 deja vu. Um, what has surprised you the most? Uh, many things, <laughs> uh, but certain things uh, maybe haven't surprised me that much. I think there was some quite interesting findings in the data uh, of the last election back in 2016, uh, where we saw that um, uh, Hillary Hillary Clinton performed um, uh, slightly uh, poorlier than Obama with women. Uh, Trump did okay. Um, with Latino votes, he increased his um, support. Uh, with young votes, he maintained um, the election result from from 12. Um, and with um, African Americans, they had a um, had a smaller turnout for for Hillary Clinton. So there were indications, uh, numbers that we could look to to see. Okay, were they just a coincidence in 2016 in history, a parenthesis we could say, or? Would they be some kind of a trend? And and what I think is, and what I wrote uh, in my piece in, in POV was that this one could might be a uh, trend because what some of the global, if we take the youngsters for instance, uh, there's been some quite uh, large uh, surveys on young people voting in Western democracies, and um, what we've seen there is that in Western democracies where we see leaders with populistic attitudes, uh, they seems to gain support from young people in the age group from 18 to 29 and from 30 to 43 uh, throughout the years that they're sitting in office. 
And it also, that's the same when we look at America. There's, uh, Trump has increased his support by the age group of 40, uh, sorry, from 30 to 43 and the age group from 80, uh, 18 to 29. And by this election, we've actually seen that there's an, a higher turnout by young people, meaning that they would probably be a higher vote for Trump in this election. So that shouldn't surprise us that much. Another thing I, th- I really think that is interesting to discuss here is, is the campaign for the Democrats. Because I think that the Democrats have like overinterpreted the numbers, especially uh, from uh, 538, from Nate Silver, and from also from... A pollster. Uh, yeah, the pollster, sorry. And also from the pollster Rachel Bycroft with this negative partisanship she called the states last time. Uh, on her new model. And what we've seen is that they are just not true. Uh, And one thing that was really interesting for me and surprising was that why Kamala Harris suddenly was in Texas, that the Democrats really believed that they could turn Texas was me so surprising. Why wasn't Kamala Harris in Florida campaigning? Because that state was really important. That was much more competitive than Texas, you know, believing Texas being really competitive was surprising to me. Yes, well, let's take that over to you that you have been working with Democrats has the campaign been well well advised? I think the two, the 2020 campaign has taken things less for granted than the 2016 campaign. Yeah. That's a good thing. Um, it seems to me that uh, the Democrats got a lot of their uh, surrogates out, and they have super strong ones. They have you know Obama, they have Hillary, they have Bill, um, that were very active in the states where they saw they could make a, a difference. And of course, some of it, it also attached to the Senate races that they felt they could win. Uh, so in that sense, I think they have um, – they've done a good job. I think that as Danes, it's really difficult for us to pick up on how strong Trump is as a media actor. We are simply – and I, you know, I'm confirmed in this thought this morning. We live on different planets than what the American you know, average citizen is, is seeing and what they are consuming in the media. We just don't get it. I mean, a lot of our references go to CNN, New York Times, uh, Nate Silver, and so on. This is not where a broad swath of the American uh, populace is. But has the Democrats then sort of, have they been aware of that, that sort of Trump's uh, force as a, as, a, as, a, as a factor in the attention economy? Because that's what I think about him is that what he's really, really good at is uh, despite being – 74, 75-year-old, like he commands the attention economy like no one else. Yeah, honestly, I think that's such a difficult uh, question to answer because a lot of the attention economy is directed directly at individuals. We can't pick up on what people see when they log into Google or YouTube or their social media because they're not directed at us. So I have no idea uh, who actually reached these uh, marginal voters. I, it's impossible to say. I think we will know some months from now, because usually you, you are able to generate data about this stuff. But right now, who can say? What, what's your answer to that, uh, so I, 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 mean, I have a theory on this, actually. And in fact, uh, it's something Harvard uh, Shorenstein Center for Study of Journalism, it, it actually published right after, 20, in, in early 2017, a study of reporting about Trump. And let's say this as well. You know, I think the media feeds into what Trump is doing, even, and he, you know, it's like this codependent relationship. But the um, the Harvard view was that the media is uh, loves negativity, so it, it it wants to discuss who's up, who's down, and but what I'd say is for a lot of Americans, both sides, they're very turned off by what we call the mainstream media, which were the traditional 
powerhouses, the ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, New York Times, a lot of Americans have long left them. And even Democrats, I know, I talked to a friend of mine yesterday, she said, I just canceled my Washington Post. I can't take it anymore. I find it so biased, so negative, I can't stand it. And what I find interesting in Denmark, there's they never refer to Fox, which is the by and large, it has record-breaking um, cover uh, uh, ratings, and Democrats watch Fox. They like the quality of it. It's uh, the substance, whatever. Don't have to say you know you agree with it, but let's just, I just want so to just point, point to something about Fox, which is that uh, Fox is actually two channels in a, in a kind Fox of way. News it's, it's, yeah. it's a, there's a news reporting, traditional journalism. Uh, maybe biased in a little kind of way, but it's 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 sound journalism. And then you have the more opinion-driven part of Fox, which is really, really uh, not. Well, uh, then you could. But what I would argue is what NBC has come become today is essentially opinion, opinion journalism. It's all editorial. It's not news. And I think that so many people have take just take CNN. They have on a good day a million viewers. That's less than what D- DR gets on a regular basis. DR gets two and a half million viewers. So I think so many Danes are caught up in a, America of. 20 years ago, where those authorities were still kind of calling the shots and that don't have understood that amazingly Republicans and all Americans have gone so dispersed, decentralized to so many other ways, radio, web, different areas where they get their news, where they don't trust the authorities because they don't believe them. Mm-hmm. Yes, but you point Yeah, there is a tendency to reject some of the big networks, but there's also a tendency for record-breaking subscription numbers to Washington Post, New York Times, The Economist, which is not even an American media, uh, Wall Street Journal, and so on. So there is a um, a, a U.S. uh, media consumption uh, constituency that is looking for quality somewhere. They're not just finding it one place. And I think there is a tendency to reject a lot of the TV channels that are um, sort of more liberal-leaning, but they're finding it other ways for example, in uh, written media. Mm-hmm. I st- want to touch upon because uh, Obama, his campaign, the 20, uh, the 2008 campaign, became famous for its use of digital media, of micro-targeting. He was very good on Facebook. That's before Twitter sort of became really big. Has the Democrats lost their edge when it comes to digital, the digital part of being a politician? I think it's a really good question just before trying to answer that. I think that Jesper and also Rosalind points to some really good arguments that it's, it's really difficult to stand here on the morning of the election in Denmark and, and say all sorts of things, why the election went the way it went, because it's so different. I think it's a really good argument uh, that Jesper has about us not understanding Donald Trump, the phenomenon Donald Trump and his ability on the media. Now, uh, on the social media, I think one thing that is has changed in this election is the two campaigns, different ways of operating. Uh, Because the Democrats have primarily worked on social media platforms, virtual uh, discussions, virtual um, lectures, et cetera, with the candidate. Now, the Republican side has, you know, they have, of course, also used the social media, but they have been out knocking doors. They've still been talking. You know, they have been... You having say, rallies. Exactly. So they have been having more uh, stakes out, you know, trying to maybe that could work, maybe that could work. And we were saying, oh, it's not control. It's not systematic. It's actually been systematic, and it's been systematic for a long time. And it's just, I think it's in the last couple of weeks, some of the Democrats out in the States said that we have to do maybe more to mobilize, to get enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yes, but then Rustin. 
Yeah, I, I think both uh, campaigns traditionally try to do several different things during a, a campaign. You know, there's a period where you do voter registration. There's a period where you try to mobilize and get turnout. And then there's persuasion and, you know, vote for this candidate or on this issue. There's nothing that I can see right now that suggests to me that one uh, of the parties has an edge uh, on, on either of those. I can't see it this uh, year, at least, because we have seen record uh, registration, record turnout. The election result hangs in the balance. So, you know, who am I to say? But I can't see that anyone has decisively lost the, the media campaign or the social media campaign. So if you look at the history of the presidency, always the, the, there's always a transformation through media. If we go, go back to FDR. He was brilliant at using the radio. We can remember that famous debate between Nixon and Kennedy and that, you know, Nixon just couldn't understand TV and Kennedy just, you know, busted out and won. You know, that was, a, you know, and they sat in the Danish chairs and did that discussion. Um, but now you go to Obama, who was amazing to use YouTube, use social media. But Trump does it even better. So there's no monopoly on any one party. I mean, I think the Republicans have come a long way. I think back to John McCain, who talked about using the internets, plural, you know, (laughs) I'm going to send the email, you know, this kind of thing. So the Republicans have certainly closed the gap if there was any sense of, uh, uh, of a difference. One thing I would put out, though, is that we're if you look at you had Biden kind of we have this meme of him sitting in the basement, you know, and Trump barnstorming where people love to have this being physically present with him and that he has used that and invented that in a way I don't think every politician can do that. I mean, that has become his signature. He loves to go to the people, you know, get them together. It's totally electric, a lot of energy. And you can look again. Just let me wrap this up with the media point. Um, you look at Butler, Pennsylvania yesterday or the two days ago, gigantic crowds. And those kind of things are never shown in Denmark. Very rarely do you see the real numbers of, you know, how many people will stand for three days to go watch him speak in all kinds of inclement weather. And that should be an indication. Peter, I think Rosalind points to something very important there about enthusiasm creating that. And that has been really difficult for the Democrats. This time, the Obama tried to come in to try to fuel it. In the end, I can't stop thinking about that quite fun video where he and Joe Biden is in the gym and he goes around. Then he points, you know, he shoots the three pointers and, you know, he's fresh and he says, that's what I do. And what happens is that the camera focuses on Biden. You know, and Biden, he, he walks like he's he's almost dead, you know, with his glasses on and his cap. There's no no really, you know, life there. Uh, it's out there. There's a lot of memes now. <laughs> um, but one of the things, what I really think is interesting about, is about Trump and his connection to his electorate. Because when I was in Scranton in, in the Ross Bell, I tried to get into a town hall meeting. But I couldn't because I had an authorization. So I was sitting at a bar next to with some Republicans. And I was I was surprised and just amazed on how well he connects with his uh, electorate, with the voters, uh, Republican voters. He, he is close to them when he says he loves people or he, he, he helps them and he's doing that for the, the country. I can understand why people believe him. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a way of connecting that we really do not see uh, with some of the Democrat side. I have to say so. Mm-hmm. Let's just turn to that because the the states that hangs in the balance, as you said, yes, but the, is these Rust Belt states. Uh, and coming out of the 2016 election, uh, we talked about that, Jesper, when you were in here. Uh, that was Biden's analysis of why it went wrong for Hillary was that she didn't connect with the, with the Rust Belt states. And in many ways, it was perceived that he was the answer to that problem. Now, it hangs in the balance. 
it's not a decisive win. It's not a decisive win for him at all in Pennsylvania. He has to win two of two of the of, of the three states there. Still, why hasn't he been able to gain what Hillary lost? What's the answer? Well, we don't know yet who has gained what in these states, but it is not a decisive victory for either candidate in these states. And I think, to me, it has to do with the fact that there are no easy solutions to the plight of these states. I mean, you know, conventional manufacturing and industrialization, listen, I mean, American consumers will at any given time buy something through Amazon.com or Walmart that is the cheapest product and it is often not produced in the United States of America while really, really wanting American manufacturing and industrialization to come back to these states. That's what drives the global economy. There's no easy solution to that. American consumers' preferences don't support their political preferences. So neither candidate can offer a magic wand solution to that. Because has Trump then? Because that's the question then. So what, what we, kind of answer has Trump giving to the fact that uh, a, a white working class family from 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 Pennsylvania they want to buy cheap products, but the with the one hand, and they want to have a manufacturing job with the other hand. Has Trump provided a solution to that? So. Okay, I mean, we can we can unpack. You want to talk about the American economy? It's a very complex discussion. Okay, we know the jobs have left the U.S. They're not coming back. I think what it's more about is setting up a uh, setting up a condition so that new jobs can come of all kinds. And we have seen record levels of investment during the Trump administration across all sorts of industries. So there is going to have to be reinvention on all levels. Um, we see energy, uh, uh, you see investment in renewable energy of all kinds and across, you know, across red states. We've never had so much investment in renewable energy. By the way, because the regulations that were there were also holding back renewable energy. It is a great time for Vestas, for example. Um, it's a great time if you are in the drug development business. Uh, a lot of the regulations that we had that were very outdated, they delayed drugs coming to market. So I don't think you can boil down, this is all about one family. The American economy is very diverse. It's always going to have to be renewing itself, inventing itself. And it will be looking at traditional industries, going to look at new industries. Yeah, but I, the reason why I'm asking is because this question about the Rust Belt has been going on for years. It's been a decade-long problem. Uh, I don't think the median wage for a white male worker hasn't risen in 40 years. It's fallen slightly a bit. I think the, the difference of what Trump could do is he could at least listen. The, I, the challenge, you know, so the Democrats, you could say, were very pivotal and critical in bringing Silicon Valley to America. Let's say with Bill Clinton, he was there whenever we commercialized the Internet. He actually did a lot of important policy to promote the growth of the Internet. And in that part, there was a sort of saying, well, we're not going to be this manufacturing country anymore. Well, we didn't have to throw that away. Um, we see now a re resurgence of manufacturing in the U.S. There's no doubt about that. And also because of we have now, you know, internet across the United States, we're reinventing jobs in the Rust Belt in other ways, in other kinds of, uh, you know, and, and I used to work in the uh, internet marketing industry. All of my customers were in the Rust Belt. There were all sorts of retailers who were selling products from the Midwest to the rest of the USA and the rest of the world. So it is not that it has to be a traditional factory. That's no, no. not how we can Peter, see it. Peter, because you, you traveled there, that you wrote about this in the, in, in the magazine, this uh, 
deindustrialized area of the United States. Why is it that they feel so represented by Trump? Quite easy and very simplistic said is that when we saw the surge of the COVID-19 in the Rust Belt, we saw unemployment rates up at 12, 13 percent. Now, and I, I'm really surprised if the Democrats haven't looked to them. So, of course, they had. But they're down in Pennsylvania. It's down to around 6 percent. I think in Michigan, it's about went down from 13 percent to, to, to 5.8, 6.2. Just to say in a short term, when Trump comes out at his rally, he can actually um, understate that he is doing something very specific to get jobs back to the industries in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio. And especially in Ohio, I think because Ohio, we could say, is in the middle. So it tells a lot. It can tell a lot. And what is very, um, I think, important to understand is that uh, the the sentence that Biden came to say about fracking just, I think it was a week ago, is just something of great importance to the Rust Belt states. He said something that fracking, we have to look into fracking. He was not saying, the, the Republicans used it as he was saying that he would he would in stop fracking, fracking in yeah. fracking, but he, he, he that was not the th- he, that was not what he was saying. But for any, live, any, any person living in the Rust Belt, when you take away or, you know, just touch upon certain jobs or jobs opportunities, that is really fragile. Because as you mentioned yourself, Espen, in 40 years, we haven't seen any really increase in the median income for, for many people there. So they get scared. And, and, and by, by touching that, you, you, it's really difficult uh, for the Democrats then to come in, you know, because they have to support the, the uh, you could say, the green agenda. But at the same time, by supporting that, you take away jobs and job opportunities right now on the short term in the Ross Bale states. So that makes it really difficult for them uh, to, to come in with some kind of policy. Yes, sir. I think that some of the issues that we see as economic issues, where especially in the Rust Belt, you would think that voters would vote in a, in a given way. In some of these issues, the econ- what we see as economics turns into a cultural question. So should the government be involved in uh, maybe expanding healthcare? Should the government provide more of a pathway towards, let's say, college or university? Mm-hmm. And On climate that, issues as well? Should, it, totally. Yeah. And so going into the energy question, that's, that is really interesting for especially Pennsylvania. The northern and western part of Pennsylvania has created a lot of fracking jobs. Even during the, the, sorry, the Trump administration, these jobs have been falling away because it's uh, becoming more expensive now to uh, get to the next fracking fields. Demand is down, actually driven by a lot of investments in renewable energy. That's not something that uh, President Trump has, has managed one way or the other. That's markets that's driving this. And uh, people in these states can point to a certain policy, but it's, you know, Wall Street decides this stuff. And the prices for renewable energy just drives that demand. So coal is down, fracking is down. It doesn't have much to do with government policies. But when we look at the comfort level of what American voters are expecting the government to do, they want the government to stay out of a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying is I think that's a, a great point there. Economic issues become what we in Denmark would call value issues. That's that's the the conclusion. So is Trump more speaking to the value part of it than to the econo- economy? Everybody's nodding here. Mm-hmm. It's a quick round of that. Yeah, pe- very, short. yeah, very short. I just want to say to what you pointed to, yes, but I agree with that. But at the same time, it's also emotional. Yeah. 
So, so, so he's, he, he speaks to emotions out there, uh, Trump. And for the voter there, they say, okay, maybe I don't like him or I don't like this administration very much, but I know what I, you know, what I gain. But what, what do I gain with Biden and Harris? It's not clear for me. It's uncertainty. So I go for the safe one. I go for Trump uh, because that has been maybe a little bit better. Or as you said, uh, Rosalind, he, he, he sees me. He, he, he listens to us. Maybe he doesn't, but, but but that's the point, emotion. I think Trump has tapped into something that you could say is a traditional value, this sense of individualism and self-determination. So that I think in some parts of Democrat policy, which may be good policy, there's a sense of paternalism. We're going to decide the technology economy. We're going to make sure these X jobs are there. We're going to decide how it works in universities, and we're going to take care of your health care. Where Americans want to feel, whether or not it's the case that the government is working and Americans want to feel they decide for themselves. They're decide an individual decides her own destiny. She gets to choose. She will have the freedom to choose. And Trump can at least dignify that thought. Whether we can debate whether the way the policy goes, but he's just smarter about communicating but, in that way. When you feel like the Democrats with Biden, it's like, oh well this was all kind of baked in the background. It was Hillary's turn. Now it's Biden's turn. You don't really feel that because the insurgency was for Bernie Sanders. And so many people perceive that this guy just got the short end of the stick. He never got the proper chance. And and that those that element where the energy is is sort of tamped down and that there's someone kind of in the background saying, OK, we're going to run him and everyone will be happy. All right. So let's just, let's just then focus there back on Biden. Then. Because, I, I mean, the the great economy, the great curves for the economy was something that Obama, Biden created after the financial crisis. The role of government, I mean, they saved the auto industry. Uh, they bailed out uh, American financial capitalism. They, The Fed has, the, the, the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States has kept the hand under the economy uh, during the COVID-19. I mean, this idea of being self-reliant and the free market why hasn't that illusion been 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 cracked for for ordinary Americans? They've just the, the last ten years has been one big story of how important government is in the global economy, even in the economy of the United States. Yes, but why 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 hasn't the Democrats sort of gained momentum from all that? Because I think it is incredibly complex. So and if like, there's yeah, and yeah. if there's one thing that Trump is very good at, it's taking really complex issues, boiling them down to one single issue that's affecting the other thing, and then going out with that. It it hurts on the truth, um, but it works. It's incredibly effective, and he really gets a lot of support from uh, reducing the level of complexity and just saying, "Listen, if you just vote for me, I'll fix this for you." If you look back at his record, there's a whole. I mean, where did Trump Care go? It never came about. Um, what happened to the effects of tariffs on American farmers? I mean, these things have hurt a lot of different groups, but still, uh, he is able to win on some cultural issues. A lot of Americans are not comfortable with having the, uh, an expanded government role, even if it helps their overall situation. But that's a complex argument. I, I see that tendency in European and Danish politics as well, frankly. It's not a unique American phenomenon. No, but, 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 uh, on the other hand, we've seen Danish Social Democrats uh, delivering a good election here in, in, in 2019, giving, giving, giving. I mean, we have the most left-wing parliament that we have for 50 years here. I think, I mean, I mean, part of it is to kind of say, hey, I can I can deliver you security, comfort, uh, also in economic terms, 
Peter, why? What is your answer to this question? Why hasn't the Democrats? Why hasn't Biden, who came out of the Obama years, been able to 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 uh, make it a better argument for his case that they need the Democrats? They need the Democrats to because they have to bail out the American. Uh, workforce. I think it's because there's such a diversity among the different democratic groups within the political party. There's a there's a to a large extent a, some sort of of unity among uh, certain uh, value-based policies among Republicans than we see among the Democrats. Uh, if we, we were looking at, we could say something called the distribution of value-based policy lines, the dividing lines. There is a tremendous um, distance between the, the strong holding liberals and what we call the variated but supportive Democrats. In the variated supportive Democrats, we find groups such as African-Americans and Latino votes. So they're, they're what we could call in Denmark, uh, quite uh, right-wing on value-based policies such as they're against uh, women's right for abortion. They do not found homosexual marriages. They do not necessarily believe in a very plural society. They like law and order, the safety and balance. All those issues is very close to Republican uh, conservative issues. So I think the diversity within the Democratic voting groups makes it very difficult for a Democratic candidate to unify them. And I think that's been the case for the Democrats at this election as well. But just one thing before I let one another one in is to point to what Jesper said, the election is not over. So just to point to some of the, the numbers is that if we look to, let's say, uh, to, Michi- uh, to Michigan, uh, there's a county called Wayne County. Uh, we can expect that Biden in Wayne County will get at least 300,000 more votes. That will equal the difference right now between Biden and Trump. And if we look to uh, Wisconsin, where we can find um, in the Milwaukee country, yes, which is pointed to that before we went online and we, we went on live, is that that you you can see that Biden can expect maybe 150,000, maybe 200,000 more votes. So the election is absolutely not over. And he can, you know, if he wins Michigan, if he wins Wisconsin and Nevada and Arizona, he doesn't need Pennsylvania then he will be the president-elect. So it's not over. But there are problems within the Democratic parties, uh, the Democratic Party. And I think, once again, in 2020, we see these problems, and they are huge. Mm-hmm. So let's just, I just want to, because we're coming close to, to, to an end here, I think. So, you know, in many ways, we've sort of been speaking in a mental state as if Biden lost, or and I think maybe it's the expectation uh, of him uh, to him was like he was going to win and he was going to win for certain and win big. Uh, so if you just kind of that Trump came from behind again, uh, and that is odd because most American presidents are they sit for two terms. I think there's been what three in the last hundred years that only sat uh, for one term. Uh, so why did we end up there thinking that tr- Trump didn't have a t- had a chance for real? So I, I would disagree with you there. I actually thought I have I'm actually still I'll make my prediction. I believe Trump will win. I actually thought going back to 2017, he already declared his uh, candidacy for 2020. So I have uh, expected that I expect he will prevail. And um, and we can you know, I, I'm a telecom policy person. I can go into why on that particular issue. But there to me, there's also a part of he believes that he will and his voters believe it. There is a um, the energy is is strong there, and um, so where I 
always expected that he is what he is fighting against is a kind of elite view that the elites of the media elite, the academic elite or whatever, always know better. Our models always predicted. We saw in 2016 they were wrong. And I expect in 2020 it'll be proved wrong again. Yes, but why, 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 are, why are we here thinking Biden has lost? He hasn't lost yet. Uh, but Trump came from behind. We underestimated I, him again. I don't why? think so. But no. he has not. Neither uh, candidate has won a decisive victory. But it is correct to say, I think, that many um, uh, conventional media or left-leaning media or whatever you, uh, however you want to call it, had actually predicted either a landslide or a decisive victory, something in between those two. I don't think that's where it's going to end up. We can probably uh, conclude that at this point. And I think that both pollsters, media, analysts, the chattering classes, we have difficult, and I, uh, I count my, myself, all of us in this room as the chattering classes, right, or people that try to, uh, to analyze some of these movements, we have such difficulty capturing the, phenom the phenomenon of Trump. You know, why is it that in some cases people, I think, vote against their own economic interests in, in order to elect uh, this, this guy? It's simply uh, very difficult for people like me to get into their, their heads and understand their life circumstances. And that is something that we are going to struggle with quite a bit. And it's also going to be a challenge going forward, regardless of where the results end up, that neither party really has a mandate to carry out um, any decisive policy. That's regardless of, of where the presidential election uh, ends. There's not going to be a strong majority for either party in the Senate. Uh, the House looks like it will uh, definitely stay on Democratic hands. And then we'll see. I mean, the U.S. is, is a split country. And it is, in some ways, that's, that can be a good thing because that moderates a lot of things. But right now, I think there's a lot of need for reform. And no one has a mandate to carry out that reform. That's something that reform worries me. What, what do you mean by reform there? Uh, it, is, uh, it has to do with economic reform, really transitioning the economy into a modern economy that deals with um, uh, tech uh, and uh, energy, renewable energy policies, um, a post-manufacturing rust belt, um, reform of the healthcare system, reform of the education system, the prison system, and all of these things. There is such a strong need for reform. Neither party has the mandate to carry that out. Mm -hmm. The United States is stuck. Yep. Pierre? No, I would just, uh, I do agree with uh, many of the things Rosalind is saying today and uh, yeah, on the other podcast, so, and, and uh, Jesper as well. Uh, we can say all sorts of things, and it's still really difficult for us to say something. But I have to just to, 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 just to make a short remark that counting is not about energy right now. It's about numbers. So, so we, I think we can agree about that. So even that you can fuel energy, hopefully it will be about numbers and nothing else because that is, is, the, is the law. Now, another thing is, is interesting is that about the pollsters and why is it that we get, keep getting it wrong is that when, when a state such as Ohio come up as a toss-up state, uh, and when you've, like me and many others, been traveling around Ohio and really just s seen and felt this one is just strongly Republican and the ground game and the politicians and the people out there voting or uh, fighting for getting out the vote. And it comes up as a toss-up state. Then you get suspicious. You know, what, what is this about? How, how can they be that wrong? Uh, and they were wrong uh, today. Uh, and why is that? I think it's because, you know, for Americans, just as Roshan pointed to, it's, it's, you know, in Rossbell states, it's about uh, going out hunting, you know, go barbecuing, have the time to go out and fishing, you know, minding your own business. 
just as you as you pointed to. And I think that when some of the Democratic candidates this time, once again, try to touch upon issues, for many of these citizens or inhabitants in the Rust Belt states, it's big government coming in. You know, it's healthcare for many. It's a collective uh, discourse. And, and, and that is, in a way, opposite of what people really want to out there. And I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Ruslan Leighton, Jesper Packard Pedersen, Peter Christian Burnham, thank you so much for coming in here and, and, and digesting the uh, not-finished-yet uh, American election. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Great you. to be here. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.